Chapter 2, Section 2 of Manual of Egyptian Archaeology and Guide to the Study of Antiquities in Egypt by Gaston Maspero, translated by Amelia B. Edwards. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Chapter 2, Religious Architecture. Section 2, Temples. Most of the famous sanctuaries, Dendera, Edfu, Abydos, were founded before Mena by the servants of Hor. Becoming dilapidated or ruined in the course of ages, they have been restored, rebuilt, remodelled, one after the other, till nothing remains of the primitive design to show us what the first Egyptian architecture was like. The funerary temples built by the kings of the fourth dynasty have left some traces. That of the second pyramid of Giza was so far preserved at the beginning of the last century that Mallet saw four large pillars standing. It is now almost entirely destroyed, but this loss has been more than compensated by the discovery in 1853 of a temple situate about 50 yards to the southward of the Sphinx. The façade is still hidden by the sand, and inside is but partly uncovered. The core masonry is of fine Tura limestone. The casing, pillars, architraves, and roof were constructed with immense blocks of alabaster or red granite. The plan is most simple. In the middle is a great hall in the shape of the letter T, adorned with sixteen square pillars, sixteen feet in height. At the northwest corner of this hall is a narrow passage on an inclined plane, by which the building is now entered. At the southwest corner is a recess which contains six niches, in pairs, one over the other. A long gallery opening at each end into a square chamber, now filled with rubbish, completes the plan. Without any main door, without windows, and entered through a passage too long to admit the light of day, the building can only have received light and air through slanting air slits in the roofing, of which traces are yet visible on the tops of the walls, on each side of the main hall. Inscriptions, bas-reliefs, paintings, such as we are accustomed to find everywhere in Egypt, are all wanting, and yet these bare walls produce as great an impression upon the spectator as the richly decorated temples of Thebes. Not only grandeur, but sublimity has been achieved in the mere juxtaposition of blocks of granite and alabaster by means of purity of line and exactness of proportion. Some few scattered ruins in Nubia, the Fayon and Sinai do not suffice to prove whether the temples of the 12th dynasty merited the praises lavished on them in the contemporary inscriptions or not. Those of the Theban kings, of the Ptolemies, and of the Caesars, which are yet standing, are in some cases nearly perfect, whilst almost all are easy of restoration to those who conscientiously study them upon the spot. At first sight they seem to present an infinite variety as to the arrangement, but on a closer view they are found to conform to a single type. We will begin with the sanctuary. This is a low, small, obscure, rectangular chamber inaccessible to all save Pharaoh and the priests. As a rule it contained neither statue nor emblem, but only the sacred bark, or a tabernacle of painted wood, placed upon a pedestal. A niche in the wall, or an isolated shrine formed of a single block of stone, received on certain days the statue, or inanimate symbol of the local god, or the living animal, or the image of the animal, sacred to that god. A temple must necessarily contain this one chamber, and if it contained but this one chamber, it would be no less a temple than the most complex buildings. Very rarely, however, especially in large towns, was the service of the gods thus limited to the strictly necessary. Around the sanctuary, or 
divine house was grouped a series of chambers in which sacrificial and ceremonial objects were stored as flowers perfumes stuffs and precious vessels in advance of this block of buildings were next built one or more halls supported on columns and in advance of these came a courtyard where the priests and devotees assembled this courtyard was surrounded by a colonnade to which the public had access and was entered through a gateway flanked by two towers in front of which were placed statues or obelisks the whole being surrounded by an enclosure wall of brickwork and approached through an avenue of sphinxes every pharaoh was free to erect a hall still more sumptuous in front of those which his predecessors had built and what he did others might do after him thus successive series of chambers and courts of pylons and porticoes were added reign after reign to the original nucleus and vanity or piety prompting the work the temple continued to increase in every direction till space or means had failed the most simple temples were sometimes the most beautiful this was the case as regards the sanctuaries erected by amenhotep the third in the island of elephantine which were figured by the members of the french expedition at the end of the last century and destroyed by the turkish governor of aswan in eighteen twenty two the best preserved namely the south temple consisted of but a single chamber of sandstone fourteen feet high thirty one feet wide and thirty nine feet long the walls which were straight and crowned with the usual cornice rested on a platform of masonry some eight feet above the ground this platform was surrounded by a parapet wall breast high all around the temple ran a colonnade the sides each consisting of seven square pillars without a capital or base and the two facades front and back being supported by two columns with the lotus bud capital both pillars and columns rose direct from the parapet except on the east front where a flight of ten or twelve steps enclosed between two walls of the same height as the platform led up to the cellar the two columns in the head of the steps were wider apart than those of the opposite face and through the space thus opened was seen a richly decorated door a second door opened at the other end beneath the portico later in roman times this feature was utilized in altering the building the intercolumnar space at the end was filled up and thus was obtained a second hall rough and bare but useful for the purposes of the temple service these elephantine sanctuaries bring to mind the peripteral temples of the greeks and this resemblance to one of the most familiar forms of classical architecture explains perhaps the boundless admiration with which they were regarded by the french savants those of mashika of el kab and of sharanah are somewhat more elaborate the building at el kab is in three divisions first a hall of four columns next a chamber supported by four hathor-headed pillars and at the end wall opposite the door a niche approached by four steps of these small oratories the most complete model now remaining belongs to the ptolemaic period namely the temple of hathor at deir el medineh its length is just double its breadth the walls are built with a batter inclining inwards and are externally bare save at the door which is framed in a projecting border covered with finely sculpted scenes the interior is in three parts a portico supported by two lotus flower columns a pronaeus reached by a flight of four steps and separated from the portico by a wall which connects the two lotus flower columns with two hathor-headed pilasters in antus lastly the sanctuary flanked by two small chambers which are lighted by square openings cut in the ceiling the ascent to the terrace is by way of a staircase very ingeniously placed in the south corner of the portico and furnished with a beautiful open window this is merely a temple in miniature 
but the parts though small are so well proportioned that it would be impossible to conceive of anything more delicate or graceful we cannot say as much for the temple which the pharaohs of the twentieth dynasty erected at the south of karnak in honour of the god khonsu but if the style is not irreproachable the plan is nevertheless so clear that one is tempted to accept it as the type of an egyptian temple in preference to others more elegant or majestic on analysis it resolves itself into two parts separated by a thick wall in the centre of the lesser division is the holy of holies open at both ends and isolated from the rest of the building by a surrounding passage ten feet in width to the right and left of this sanctuary are small dark chambers and behind it is a hall of four columns from which open seven other chambers such was the house of the god having no communication with the adjoining parts except by two doors in the southern wall these opened into a wide and shallow hypostyle hall divided into nave and aisles the nave is supported by four lotus flower columns twenty-three feet in height and aisles each contain two lotus bud columns eighteen feet in height the roof of the nave is therefore five feet higher than that of the sides this elevation was made use of for lighting purposes the clerestory being fitted with stone gratings which admitted the daylight the court was square and surrounded by a double colonnade entered by way of four side gates and a great central gateway flanked by two quadrangular towers with sloping fronts this pylon measures a hundred and five feet in length thirty-three feet in width and sixty feet in height it contains no chambers but only a narrow staircase which leads to the top of the gate and thence up to the towers four long grooves in the facade reaching to a third of its height correspond to four quadrangular openings cut through the whole thickness of the masonry here were fixed four great wooden masts formed of jointed beams and held in place by a wooden framework fixed in the four openings above mentioned from these masts floated long streamers of various colours such was the temple of khonsu and such in their main features were the majority of the greater temples of theban and ptolemaic times as luxor the ramesseum medinet habu edfu and dendra though for the most part in ruins they affect one with a strange and disquieting sense of oppression as mystery was a favourite attribute of the egyptian gods even so the plan of their temples is in such wise devised as to lead gradually from the full sunshine of the outer world to the obscurity of their retreats at the entrance we find large open spaces where air and light stream freely in the hypostyle hall is pervaded by a sober twilight the sanctuary is more than half lost in a vague darkness and at the end of the building in the farthest of the chambers night all but reigns completely the effect of distance which was produced by this gradual diminution of light was still further heightened by various structural artifices the parts for instance are not on the same level the ground rises from the entrance and there are always a few steps to mount in passing from one part to another in the temple of khonsu the difference of level is not more than five and a quarter feet but it is combined with the lowering of the roof which in most cases is very strongly marked from the pylon to the wall at the farther end the height decreases continuously the peristyle is loftier than the hypostyle hall and the hypostyle hall is loftier than the sanctuary the last hall of columns and the farthest chamber are lower and lower still the architects of ptolemaic times changed certain details of arrangement they erected chapels and oratories on the terraced roofs and reserved space for the construction of secret passages and crypts 
in the thickness of the walls, wherein to hide the treasures of the god. They, however, introduced only two important modifications of the original plan. The sanctuary was formally entered by two opposite doors. They left but one. Also, the colonnade, which was originally continued round the upper end of the court, or, where there was no court, along the façade of the temple, became now the pronaos, so forming an additional chamber. The columns of the outer row are retained, but built into a wall reaching to about half their height. This connecting wall is surmounted by a cornice, which thus forms a screen, and so prevented the outer throng from seeing what took place within. The pronaos is supported by two, three, or even four rows of columns, according to the size of the edifice. For the rest, it is useful to compare the plan of the Temple of Edfu with that of the Temple of Khonsu, observing how little they differ the one from the other. Thus designed, the building sufficed for all the needs of worship. If enlargement was needed, the sanctuary and surrounding chambers were generally left untouched, and only the ceremonial parts of the building, as the hypostyle halls, the courts, or pylons, were attacked. The procedure of the Egyptians under these circumstances is best illustrated by the history of the great temple of Karnak. Founded by Usertesen I, probably on the site of a still earlier temple, it was but a small building constructed of limestone and sandstone, with granite doorways. The inside was decorated with 16-sided pillars. The second and third Amenemhats added some work to it, and the princes of the 13th and 14th dynasties adorned it with statues and tables of offerings. It was still unaltered when, in the 18th century BC, Thothmes I, enriched with booty of war, resolved to enlarge it. In advance of what already stood there, he erected two chambers, preceded by a court and flanked by two isolated chapels. In advance of these, again, he erected three successive pylons, one behind the other. The whole presented the appearance of a vast rectangle placed crosswise at the end of another rectangle. Thothmes II and Hatshepsut covered the walls erected by their father with bas-relief sculptures, but added no more buildings. Hatshepsut, however, in order to bring in her obelisks between the pylons of Thothmes I, opened a breach in the south wall and overthrew sixteen of the columns which stood in that spot. Thothmes III, probably finding certain parts of the structure unworthy of the god, rebuilt the first pylon and also the double sanctuary, which he renewed in the red granite of Syene. To the eastward he rebuilt some old chambers, the most important among them being the processional hall, used for the starting point and halting place of ceremonial processions, and these he surrounded with a stone wall. He also made the lake whereon the sacred boats were launched on festive days, and with a sharp change of axis he built two pylons facing towards the south, thus violating the true relative proportion which had, till then, subsisted between the body and the front of the general mass of the building. The outer enclosure was now too large for the earlier pylons, and did not properly accord with the later ones. Amenhotep III corrected this defect. He erected a sixth and yet more massive pylon, which was, therefore, better suited for the façade. As it now stood, the temple surpassed even the boldest architectural enterprises hitherto attempted. But the pharaohs of the 19th dynasty succeeded in achieving still more. They added only a hypostyle hall and a pylon, but the hypostyle hall measured 170 feet in length by 329 feet in breadth. Down the centre they carried a main avenue of 12 columns with lotus flower capitals, being the loftiest ever erected in the interior of a building, while in the aisles, ranged in seven rows on either side, they planted 122 columns with lotus bud capitals. The roof of the great nave rose to a height of 75 feet above the level of the ground, 
and the pylon stood some fifty feet higher still. During a whole century, three kings laboured to perfect this hypostyle hall. Ramesses I conceived the idea, Seti I finished the bulk of the work, and Ramesses II wrought nearly the whole of the decoration. The pharaohs of the next following dynasties vied with each other for such blank spaces as might be found, wherein to engrave their names upon the columns, and so to share the glory of the three founders. But farther they did not venture. Left thus, however, the monument was still incomplete. It still needed one last pylon and a colonnaded court. Nearly three centuries elapsed before the task was again taken in hand. At last the Bubastite kings decided to begin the colonnades, but their work was as feeble as their resources were limited. Tahaka, the Ethiopian, imagined for a moment that he was capable of rivalling the great Theban pharaohs, and planned a hypostyle hall even larger than the first. But he made a false start. The columns of the great nave, which were all that he had time to erect, were placed too wide apart to admit of being roofed over, so they never supported anything but remained as memorials of his failure. Finally, the Ptolemies, faithful to the traditions of the native monarchy, threw themselves into the work, but their labours were interrupted by revolts at Thebes, and the earthquake of the year 27 BC destroyed part of the temple, so that the pylon remained forever unfinished. The history of Karnak is identical with that of all great Egyptian temples, when closely studied, the reason why they are, for the most part, so irregular becomes evident. The general plan is practically the same, and the progress of the building was carried forward in the same way. But the architects could not always foresee the future importance of their work, and the site was not always favourable to the development of the building. At Luxor, the progress went on methodically enough under Amenhotep III and Seti I, but when Ramesses II desired to add to the work of his predecessors, a bend in the river compelled him to turn eastwards. His pylon is not parallel to that of Amenhotep III, and his colonnades make a distinct angle with the general axis of the earlier work. At Philae, the deviation is still greater. Not only is the larger pylon out of alignment with the smaller, but the two colonnades are not parallel with each other. Neither are they attached to the pylon with a due regard to symmetry. This arises neither from negligence nor willfulness, as is popularly supposed. The first plan was as regular as the most symmetrically-minded designer could wish, but it became necessary to adapt it to the requirements of the site, and the architects were, thenceforth, chiefly concerned to make the best of the irregularities to which they were condemned by the configuration of the ground. Such difficulties were, in fact, a frequent source of inspiration, and Philae shows with what skill the Egyptians extracted every element of beauty and picturesqueness from enforced disorder. The idea of the rock-cut temple must have occurred to the Egyptians at an early period. They carved the houses of the dead in the mountainside. Why, therefore, should they not, in like manner, carve the houses of the gods? Yet the earliest known Spios sanctuaries date from only the beginning of the 18th dynasty. They are generally found in those parts of the valley where the cultivable land is narrowest, as near Beni Hassan, at Gebel Silsila, and in Nubia. All varieties of the constructed temple are found in the rock-cut temple, though more or less modified by local conditions. The Spios Artemidos is approached by a pillared portico, but only contains a square chamber with a niche at the end for the statue of the goddess Paquet. At Kalalat Ada, a flat, narrow façade faces the river and is reached by a steep flight of steps. Next comes a hypostyle hall, flanked by two dark chambers, and lastly, a sanctuary in two storeys, one above the other. 
the chapel of Horemheb at Gebel Silsila is formed of a gallery parallel to the river, supported by four massive pillars left in the rock. From this gallery, the sanctuary chamber opens at right angles. At Abu Simbel, two temples are excavated entirely in the cliff. The front of the great spios imitates a sloping pylon crowned with a cornice, and guarded as usual by four seated colossi flanked by smaller statues. These colossi are 66 feet high. The doorway passed. There comes a first hall measuring 130 feet in length by 60 feet in width, which corresponds to the usual peristyle. Eight erisside statues, backed by as many square pillars, seem to bear the mountain on their heads. Beyond this come a hypostyle hall, a transverse gallery isolating the sanctuary and the sanctuary itself between two smaller chambers. Eight crypts sunk at somewhat lower level than that of the main excavation are unequally distributed to the right and left of the peristyle. The whole excavation measures 180 feet from the doorway to the end of the sanctuary. The small spios of Hathor, about 100 paces to the northward, is of smaller dimensions. The façade is adorned with six standing colossi, four representing Ramesses II and two his wife Nefertari. The peristyle and the crypts are lacking, and the small chambers are placed at either end of the transverse passage, instead of being parallel with the sanctuary. The hypostyle hall, however, is supported by six Hathor-headed pillars. Where space permitted, the rock-cut temple was but partly excavated in the cliff, the forepart being constructed outside with blocks cut and dressed and becoming half grotto, half building. In the Hemispios at Dur, the peristyle is external to the cliff. At Beit el Wali, the pylon and court are built. At Gurf Hasen and Wadi Sabua, pylon, court and hypostyle hall are all outside the mountain. The most celebrated and original Hemispios is that built by Queen Hatshepsut at Deir el Bahari in the Theban necropolis. The sanctuary and chapels which, as usual, accompany it, were cut about a hundred feet above the level of the valley. In order to arrive at that height, slopes were made and terraces laid out according to a plan which was not understood until the site was thoroughly excavated. Between the Hemispios and the isolated temple, the Egyptians created yet another variety, namely the built temple backed by but not carried into the cliff. The Temple of the Sphinx at Giza and the Temple of Seti I at Abydos may be cited as two good examples. I have already described the former. The area of the latter was cleared in a narrow and shallow belt of sand, which here divides the plain from the desert. It was sunk up to the roof, the tops of the walls but just showing above the level of the ground. The staircase which led up to the terraced roof led also to the top of the hill. The front which stood completely out seemed in no wise extraordinary. It was approached by two pylons, two courts, and a shallow portico supported on square pillars. The unusual part of the building only began beyond this point. First, there were two hypostyle halls instead of one. These are separated by a wall with seven doorways. There is no nave, and the sanctuary opens direct from the second hall. This, as usual, consists of an oblong chamber with a door at each end. But the rooms by which it is usually surrounded are here placed side by side in a line, two to the right and four to the left. Further, they are covered by cobalt vaults, and are lighted only from the doors. Behind the sanctuary are further novelties. Another hypostyle hall abuts on the end wall, and its dependencies are unequally distributed to right and left. As if this were not enough, the architect also constructed to the left of the main building a court, five chambers of columns, various passages and dark chambers. In short, an entire wing branching off at right angles to the axis of the temple proper, 
with no counterbalancing structures on the other side. These irregularities become intelligible when the site is examined. The cliff is shallow at this part, and the smaller hypostyle hall is backed by only a thin partition of rock. If the usual plan had been followed, it would have been necessary to cut the cliff entirely away, and the structure would have forfeited its special characteristic, that of a temple backed by cliff, as desired by the founder. The architect, therefore, distributed in width those proportions of the edifice which he could not carry out in length, and he even threw out a wing. Some years later, when Rameses II constructed a monument to his own memory, about a hundred yards to the northward of the older building, he was careful not to follow in his father's footsteps. Built on the top of an elevation, his temple had sufficient space for development, and the conventional plan was followed in all its strictness. Most temples, even the smallest, should be surrounded by a square enclosure, or temenos. At Medinet Habu, this enclosure wall is of sandstone, low and embattled. This innovation is due to a whim of Rameses III, who, in giving to his monument the outward appearance of a fortress, sought to commemorate his Syrian victories. Elsewhere, the doorways are of stone, and the walls are built in irregular courses of crude bricks. The great enclosure wall was not, as frequently stated, intended to isolate the temple and screen the priestly ceremonies from eyes profane. It marked the limits of the divine dwelling, and served, when needful, to resist the attacks of enemies whose cupidity might be excited by the accumulated riches of the sanctuary. As at Karnak, avenues of sphinxes and series of pylons led up to the various gates and formed triumphal approaches. The rest of the ground was in part occupied by stables, cellarage, granaries, and private houses. Just as in Europe during the Middle Ages, the population crowded most densely round and about the churches and abbeys, so in Egypt they swarmed around the temples, profiting by that security which the terror of his name and the solidity of his ramparts ensured to the local deity. A clear space was at first reserved round the pylons and the walls, but in course of time the houses encroached upon this ground and were even built up against the boundary wall. Destroyed and rebuilt, century after century, upon the selfsame spot, the debris of these surrounding dwellings so raised the level of the soil that the temples ended, for the most part, by being gradually buried in a hollow formed by the artificial elevation of the surrounding city. Herodotus noticed this at Bubastus, and on examination it is seen to have been the same in many other localities. At Ombos, at Edfu, at Dendera, the whole city nestled inside the precincts of the divine dwelling. At El Kab, where the temple Temenos formed a separate enclosure within the boundary of the city walls, it served as a sort of donjon or keep in which the garrison could seek a last refuge. At Memphis and at Thebes, there were as many keeps as there were great temples, and these sacred fortresses, each at first standing alone in the midst of houses, were, from the time of the 18th dynasty, connected each with each by avenues of sphinxes. These were commonly Andros sphinxes, combining the head of a man and the body of a lion. But we also find Creo sphinxes, which united a ram's head with a lion's body. Elsewhere, in places where the local worship admitted of such substitution, a calchant ram, holding a statuette of the royal founder between his bent forelegs, takes the place of the conventional sphinx. The avenue leading from Luxor to Karnak was composed of these diverse elements. It was one mile and a quarter in length, and there were many bends in it. But this fact affords no fresh proof of Egyptian, quote, symmetrophobia, end quote. The enclosures of the two temples were not oriented alike, and the avenues which started squarely from the fronts of each could never have met had they not deviated from their first course. Finally, it may be said that the inhabitants of Thebes 
saw about as much of their temples as we see at the present day. The sanctuary and its immediate surroundings were closed against them, but they had access to the facades, the courts, and even the hypostyle halls, and might admire the masterpieces of their architects as freely as we admire them now. End of chapter 2, section 2. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.